It's interesting at this time of the year, elections are still a good ways off, but everybody's jockeying for position. And I don't know about you, but I think Donald Trump has got the nomination locked up for best toupee. He's the greatest in that regards. I mean, that's a question that kind of happens when you get into the political season, is who's better than who? You know, here's, here's my, my stance on border security. Here's what I believe about taxation. Here's what I believe about foreign policy. And people ask the question. And it, it's not just adults and it's not just politicians that get into this, you know, I'm better than you. My, my policy is better. I'm the greatest. I'm the one who's worthy of your vote. It happens on the playground, okay? So if you happen to be the really small kid, you always got picked last for whatever the sport was, unless it was something where, like, they needed to lift you really high, you know, you're the peak of the pyramid, then you got picked. But if it was anything requiring brute strength or size, you were always the last one picked because you were not, let's face it, the greatest. It's a perpetual question. And it's one that's not just a question that we deal with in our day and age. It is a timeless issue, as we will see this morning. Um, Jesus, as we continue through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the last time we saw Jesus... We saw something really remarkable about Jesus. Jesus was demonstrating for us a manner and an attitude with which we engage with outsiders. Specifically, what had happened at the very end of Matthew 17 was that Jesus was traveling through. Evidently, they passed through a custom station. And uh, Peter, it was inquired of Peter on behalf of Jesus, whether Jesus paid the taxes. And Jesus asks a really interesting question. He says, do sons or slaves pay? Sons of kings don't pay, the slaves do, the servants do. And Jesus is saying, I'm exempt from the tax. I'm the son of God, I'm the, I'm the king of the new kingdom, I'm exempt. But in order that we don't cause people to stumble, he tells Peter, go catch a fish, you're going to find the tax money in the fish's mouth. I've gone fishing a bunch, I've never found a coin in a fish's mouth, so I just need to go fishing with Jesus, I guess, and it all works out. And so we, we, we move to uh, chapter 18 in this, this posture of humility, that Jesus doesn't display just for Christians, he displays it to non-Christians as well. He says, I'm exempt, but I'm going to serve. And as we get to Matthew 18, we see this applied specifically to the church. Matthew 18, I I know um, scripture passages for a pastor are like a mom with her kids. You're not supposed to have a favorite. Um, But Matthew 18, I really believe, is one of the most beautiful chapters in all of scripture because Jesus talks extensively about the church. You go to conferences and people say, well, you know, we think you can do this and you can do that. That's a bunch of baloney because the Bible actually tells us what we're supposed to do as a church. And Matthew 18 is the high watermark. It's the concerto. It's the the magnum opus of everything that Jesus says about the church. And what he has to say about the church doesn't have to do with um, budgets or buildings or programs. It has to do with how Christians relate to one another. That's what the church is, isn't it? Programs change, buildings fall down, personnel look different, but the the way people relate, as a matter of fact, I think Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples by what programs you do. Isn't that it? King James? (laughs) You all men will know you are my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. And so this is the fourth of five major lectures that Jesus gives. The first, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 10 is the Sermon on Mission. Matthew 13 is a sermon full of parables. And then when you get to Matthew 18, it is Jesus' discourse 
on what Christian community life is supposed to look like. And I'll, I'll guarantee you something. If God will grant you the grace to listen with ears that will hear, you will have something in your heart that will long for this kind of community. It's a beautiful picture. <clears throat> now, the truth is, everybody has at least one part of Matthew 18 kind of in their mind. You think you know what Matthew 18 is all about. Because you get to verses 15 through 20, and it's all of that. You know, if there's a problem, you go to them. And if not, you take two people, and then you bring it to the church. And you <clears throat> Discipline is an important part of community life. Uh, an undisciplined football team probably just needs to quit. They're not going to get anything done. And the same is true with the family of God. But I want to challenge you. Before we get to the passage of Matthew 18 that is maybe a little difficult to understand, hard to implement, uh, foreign sounding to our ears, listen to the spirit of the first two sermons that we will have in Matthew 18 and see if that undergirds and lays the foundation for the stuff that is more difficult later on. So Jesus gives his greatest teachings in all of the scripture on the life of the redeemed and how we're supposed to interact with each other. Super, super important, but frequently misunderstood. So we'll begin in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. And if you don't have your own Bible, there should be a black covered Bible in the pew in front of you, page 695. <clears throat> we'll get you where you need to go. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, it's not just playgrounds and it's not just politicians. It's disciples. How do I measure up? Where do I fit? And it's interesting because the disciples are here gathered together and they came to Jesus corporately. The last time we saw the disciples all together was verse 22 of chapter 17. And that's when Jesus had uh, talked about their littleness of faith and he had predicted with great specificity uh, and explicitness that he was not just going to die, that he was going to die because he was going to be betrayed. And if you look at the end of verse 22, verse 23, and it says, just real quickly, and the disciples were greatly distressed. Evidently, their distress didn't last very long because the next time we see all the disciples together, what are they doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest. They've heard Jesus talk about Peter a little bit, and they know John's a beloved disciple, but hey, I think I got a shot. Can I, can I throw my name in the hat for the greatest? Jesus has just talked about his entire purpose in coming is to die, and nobody asks a clarifying question. What I want to know is, where do I fit on the depth chart, God? Because that's what's most important to me. And so we see here at the very beginning of Jesus' conversation about building Christian community that one of the greatest hindrances to Christian community is a worldly desire for greatness. The disciples, by their question, prove that they are no different than the Jewish leaders that Jesus opposes because the Jewish leaders are all about endeavor and accomplishment and status and the the disciples are measuring their lives by the same yardstick that those people are using. It's sad, but one of the things that we'll see is Jesus does something really amazing. <clears throat> you see, Jesus isn't opposed to your desire for greatness. He just wants you to have the right desire for greatness. He does this in another place. You'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth. 
where rust will destroy and moths will eat it and thieves can steal. Instead, lay up for your treasures where? In heaven. Jesus opposed to treasure seeking? Nope. He is all about it. He says, pile it up. Just make sure it's that kind of treasure and not this kind of treasure. It's kind of like Jesus is doing some spiritual Aikido. You know, he's doing some martial arts. Because if you've ever done anything with martial arts, you know that you use your opponent's force against you. So if you come running at me and I'm trained, I know how to sidestep you and use your own force and throw you and I haven't even broken a sweat. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you, want, you have a desire for greatness? Let me throw you in a different way and say, seek for greatness. Just make sure that it's truly great. Make sure that it's great the way I define it. What kind of greatness are you looking for? So the disciples start this off by asking a question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Pick me. Jesus responds with an illustration and instruction. Look at verses 2 through 4. Then, in response, Jesus called a child to himself, and he had the boy stand among them. And he said, I assure you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lays a principle down here really thick because it's very important for us that the the only true basis for the kind of Christian community that he desires is biblical conversion. You want to be great the way Jesus defines it? Guess what the starting point is? You must be converted. And the conversion that he's talking about is you have to be converted to be like a little child. And then he says specifically what he's talking about about that little child. To humble yourself like a little, like a little kid. It's a wonderful thing. So in response to the disciples, Jesus has a super striking illustration because it's not striking at all. He takes a kid and says, you want to talk about greatness? And you start thinking Donald Trump, millionaire, people with political clout, people with big fancy suits and cars. And he takes a little kid. And he says, here's an example of greatness. And if you're honest, you kind of scratch your head too and you go, What's on his resume that makes him so great? And you've just failed the test. <laughs> because you want to see his accomplishments. You want to see his um, accolades. What awards has he been given? And Jesus says, you want to know who the successful are? It's not the rich and it's not the powerful and it's not the people with big heads. It's the childlike. And so again, Jesus is redirecting their ambition for greatness and he's saying to be like a kid. And so I think there are three characteristics that Jesus is really pointing out here that I think line up with Scripture and I think are helpful for us. What are these things that make a kid great? What is it that he... It's not lack of potty training, okay? So there's a couple things we can establish. That's a really good thing. Um, There are some things about kids that are praiseworthy. And I think the first one is this, is that children have a complete trust. They have a complete trust. Why? They are vulnerable and unable to do most things. <clears throat> there are uh, exceedingly rare occasions where anyone sleeps in in our house. That just, it doesn't happen. Um, maybe some people, but I'm not going to call my girls out. So, um, oops. And so, uh, Colin, you know, he, he loves his sleep. But if he's up before everybody, and when he was a little shorter, 
he would go into the kitchen and he would just kind of sit patiently because cereal's up here. <laughs> He's down here. Now, what's he do? He knows, he knows how to like, you know, he climbs and He's on top of the counter. He's hanging from the light fixtures. I'm like, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. But kids have to trust because they can't do it. I mean, kids, kids can't even buckle themselves in a car if they, ha- if they have to. I can't even buckle them in a car if they've got a car seat. Uh, it's craziness. And so they are almost, almost entirely dependent upon adults for protection and for provision. They know you're going to take care of me because if you don't, if you don't, there's nothing for me. I love this. This is, this is, this is not going to sound good. Uh, and so I have to preface it because it's family life. Don't call the Department of Human Services, you know, wh- whoever it is. Social services, don't take my kids away. <clears throat> um, we, Marcin had the opportunity to uh, go on a cruise for our 19th anniversary. Woo! <clears throat> which was great. We don't get away from our kids very much, which was no, caused no small degree of consternation among the kids. You know, We had one kid who wouldn't talk to us for two days before we left because he, we don't love him because we're leaving him. And then um, <clears throat> Colin is completely different. You know, he's, when he thinks of a cruise, if I say the word Costa Concordia, does that ring a bell for anyone? You remember the cruise ship in Italy where the guy got too close to the coast and the ship went over this way? That's what's in his mind when he hears of going on a cruise. And so we're like, great. <clears throat> so he, he wants to know if we go on a cruise and something happens, we, we get Costa Concordia, what's going to happen to him? <clears throat> Smart. He's like his mom. I mean, that's a good question. You know, why? Why is that a concern for a, a five or a six-year-old? He's dependent upon us. Who's going to reach the cereal on the top shelf? And so you know what he said? He said this with, this is the part that's going to sound really bad. He said this as happily hearted as you possibly can say this. He said, Mom and Dad, if you guys die, I'm just going to kill myself. <laughs> What's his point? I got no, you are the ones that are to take care of me. And if I don't have you, I don't want anybody. That's complete trust. And that's what God says is great. Now, I have never happily hearted said, I will kill myself. Um, (laughs) Colin will be in counseling in his teen years, I'm sure. But it serves as a good illustration. Here's another thing that is cool about kids. If you try to give an adult something, you ever tried to give an adult something and they go, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Like you're giving them a virus, you know? No, that's not it. Like adults don't want you to give them something because now... They owe you. Now I'm obligated. You ever give a kid something? Woohoo! <laughs> give me another one! Like, with my boys, it's Legos. You give them Legos, you are now the fourth person of the Trinity. Um, it's, you are awesome. And the next time they see you, they will ask for another one. So uh, Mr. Craig had to stop giving out candy because now, like, when my kids saw him, they're like, give it. Kids don't just have complete trust, but they celebrate their dependence. I got candy. I got no money, no job, and no transportation to go get it. Somebody gave it to me. Praise God, you know, (laughs) candy, toys. They're just happy to have that. And it's tough for us to think about when Jesus says, be like a kid. 
you go, so what am I supposed to do? Because what do kids do? Not much. From game to game, from hobby to hobby, from pastime to pastime, and then they eat and sleep, and then they do the whole thing again. From game to game, from pastime to pastime, from hobby to hobby. You know what's crazy? They will even make up their own game that no one else in the world knows the rules to, and they will give themselves to it with an unashamed wholeheartedness. I think Jesus is praising that. He's saying they're completely trusting. They celebrate their dependence, and they have an unashamed wholeheartedness because they don't care who sees them. They don't care about status. They can give themselves wholeheartedly, unashamedly to the thing that they are giving themselves to. So the big difference between adults and kids is kids are content with a humble, joyful, and unashamedly dependent status. The problem is, as adults, I mean, dependency is a bad word. I mean, like, you're going to go on, like, the Maury Povich show if you're dependent. You know, you're codependent. We want to be independent. I want to be an independent woman. I want to be a self-made man. I want to be the big man on campus. I don't want to owe nobody nothing. And Jesus says, unless you are converted and humble yourself like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He is not laying down some cute moral code or some Aesop's fable for how to win friends and influence people. He is saying that this is a matter of life and death. If you want to make it into the kingdom of heaven, you have got to realize you cannot save yourself. And if you think you can, you've either made God too small, you've minimized your sin, or you've made yourself too big. Those are the options. You cannot save yourself. So you have to come to the end of yourself. You have to humble yourself to say, Jesus, what you are giving out, I need it. When Jesus comes around and hands out grace, you're going to go, no, 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 not me. You say, yes, give it to me. Because without this key attribute, it's impossible to enter the kingdom. So for all of you out there that are really smart, really successful, really intelligent, really noble, this is going to be hard for you. Because the more accolades you have, the more letters you have after your name, and the more um, bank account you get, and whatever it is that you find your fulfillment in besides the gospel, the harder it is for you to humble yourself and say, yeah, I need something. Because everything in the world will tell you it's up to you, man. You've got it. Now, the key here is when Jesus says to be like a child, these are the things he's encouraging us to do. The goal is humility of heart, not childishness of thought. I've, I've run into people, and this is so important, because we have an obligation as Christians to know and love God more. We have an obligation as Christians to know and love God more. If the day I got married and slipped that ring on Marcy's finger, I said, I know everything about you I need to know. I ain't invest in another thing relationally. We wouldn't have made it to our 19th anniversary. Because the commitment to be married is a commitment to dwell with her in an understanding way, for her to understand my weaknesses, my strengths, for us to complement each other. And in the same way, I have run into people who said, you know what, um, I know Jesus died, I know I'm a sinner, that's all I need to know, I don't care to learn anything else about God. Really? Yeah, I want to be childlike in my knowledge of God. That's not childlike. That's deficit. If you don't grow, there's words that we have for that. that aren't complementary. Your growth is retarded. It is slowed down. It is, you are not where you're supposed to be. When I ask what your age is and you're here and you're supposed to be here, there's something that's wrong. And so Jesus is not saying, don't learn anything. What he's, what he's saying when he says be childlike is this humility of heart that has joy in depending upon God, not 
childishness of thought. And so this littleness, this humility, he's not asking you to belittle yourself. Kids don't belittle themselves. They just understand where they're at in the pecking order of the universe. That God is a great big God, and they're a little bit kid. And there's something that happens as we get a little bit older that God doesn't seem quite so big, and we seem a lot bigger. We get our things reversed. And the problem for me is to have this humility heart that wants to know God more is so important because when we lose the knowledge of God, we lose everything. We live in a country that thinks it's bigger than God is. And what God has said, they say, no, we think the other thing. And it's going to get worse because the less we know about God, the more we become our own point of reference for anything related to truth, goodness, uh, or beauty. So in verses 1 through 4, Jesus calls us to humility. And then in verses 5 through 9, verse 5, 6, 7, 7, 8, and 9, he gives us some very positive and practical ways to demonstrate this kind of humility. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. He says, Whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, that's important, It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus continues to talk about building Christian community and he says humility is absolutely necessary. The humility for conversion is also the humility that should characterize our relationship with other Christians. And what he says here is that Christian community is built by practicing a humility that welcomes new believers and seeks to encourage their holiness. Isn't that exactly what verses 5 and 6 is? He says, if you welcome someone in my name, we're not welcoming them because they're great or awesome. We're welcoming them because they come in his name. They belong to him. They have humbled themselves to the point where they have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, which automatically makes them a brother or sister to you and me. And he says, welcome them. Welcome them. And while you're welcoming them, Make sure you don't do anything to make them stumble. Because if you do, it's better for you to just die. Whoa, hold on. Let me just assure you, I didn't say that. Jesus did. He said, if you're going to cause a baby Christian to stumble, to backslide, to downfall, it is better for your life to be over now. Better for you to have a millstone. A millstone, it's not a little thing like a mortar and pestle. This is a thing that donkeys were tied to that would grind cornmeal and it would be turned around maybe 3,000, 4,000 pounds. He said, have one of those tied to you and let's go throw you in the ocean. Not a pond, an ocean. He was, it's better for you to be dead than to cause somebody to sin. That's pretty serious. Now Jesus makes really clear here when he talks about the little ones, he's not talking about chronological children. He's talking about his disciples. Any of these little ones who believe in me, he's not talking about uh, kid Christians. He's talking about baby Christians. And he says, you welcome them and you give themselves to them because they have humbled themselves like you by trusting in Christ. But beyond that, we make it our goal not to cause sin in other believers. We don't want to impede or impair one life. So let me just ask the question. If in that end of days, when we stand before the throne, and Jesus asks us what we've done with our life, is there going to be someone who's going to come up and tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, fancy meeting you here. 
because I did some things, because I saw you do some things. Has there been one life that you've caused to stumble? Jesus says, man, that's a really serious, serious issue. And so I think there's a connection between verse 5 and verse 6. And I think it's this, that the very best way for a church to build Christian community, uh, the very best way for us to welcome these little ones that Jesus is talking about, the best way for us to welcome is not merely by saying hi. It's by encouraging their holiness. Here's one of the things I love about our church. Guys, we are, people tell me all the time, man, this is the friendliest church I've ever met. Would you rather be friendly or would you rather be holy? Because, you know, we go to Jehovah's Witness thing. They could be friendly. We go to a Mormon thing. They could be friendly. We go to, I don't know, pick your pick. We go to some civil agency and they could be friendly. We need to be friendly because I think Jesus commands us to. But he says one of the ways we welcome people is not by on the surface just saying hi, but being concerned about them enough that we are actually working and investing our life into theirs to encourage their holiness. And I'll just tell you, I look at our country. Our country has not one clue about what holiness is. They could not care. And if this is what holiness is, they want to run as fast as they can in the other direction. I don't know if in our churches I see an all-consuming passion for holiness. And so I just ask the question. If you have to think back over this last week, has there been a conversation that another Christian has had with you to encourage you towards holiness? No, not just kind of shooting the breeze, you know, talking about the Panthers or whatever's coming up. I mean, a conversation where another Christian has encouraged you on to holiness. Because the Bible says that's what it's all about. Don't settle for saying hi. Don't stop saying hi. But invest the next mile by encouraging holiness. And Jesus concludes in verses 7 through 9, and he gives us another set of really practical instructions. He says, be humble, and I want you to manifest this humbleness in a couple of ways. Welcome new believers and be cons- don't, don't put obstacles. Help their holiness. And in verses 7 through 9, he says something very practical, but very personal. <clears throat> he says this, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes your downfall, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. What's his point? Christian community is built by rooting out sin in self. We're equal opportunity, y'all. We're going to encourage holiness in others, but we're going to root sin out in self. Here's something that he says that's interesting. There's a contrast between verses 5 and 6 and 7 through 9. In verses 5 through 6, he says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it's better for you to have a millstone thrown and be cast into the ocean. You need to be punished. And it's corporal punishment. And it's capital punishment. He says, it's better for you to be dead. If you cause sin in others, you risk punishment. But in verses 7 through 9, if you coddle, cherish, nurture, play with sin in yourself, you risk damnation. What's he say here? He doesn't say throw you in a 
He doesn't say throw you in the ocean. He says you're going to be cast into hell fire. You're going to be um, you're going to go into eternal fire. And you sit there and go, oh wait a second, what about once saved, always saved? Listen, I absolutely agree. If you're truly saved, and the Bible says that a Christian cannot love and practice and coddle his sin because a Christian loves and practices and and, and pursues Christ. Now, it doesn't mean we doesn't mean there's not a struggle. It means we're not trying to get on the all-star team of sinners. We're not practicing sin. We're practicing righteousness. And, and some of us need a lot of practice. But we're practicing in this direction. We're not practicing in this direction. So we're not only concerned about sin and others. And then, you know, when we have prayer meeting on Wednesday night, oh, we need to pray for little Bobby Sue. You know, bless her heart. Got into a mess. That's not even really concerned about holiness. That's like Christian gossip but we are equally serious about our own sin and need of grace. We're not only concerned about our brother, our sister's holiness. We're concerned about ours too. The Bible here reminds us that we may not only be the victim of other people's bad examples, we may be the aggressor. If your hand causes you to sin, and we're reminded here, this proverb, I don't remember who said it, but I thought it was really good. It says, he who is not careful to avoid offense in himself will eventually, with certainty, cause offense to others. Guys, here's the deal, man. Why is our country in such a mess? Because of you and me. If I was more concerned about holiness and you were more concerned about holiness and our, that bled over into our relationships with others, don't you think our country would look a little different? But we're full of an entire nation of people who... If this is the price to pay for holiness, I'll take the discounted version. I'll take the Walmart knockoff. I'll, I'll, I'll settle for church attendance. And I can walk out of here on Sunday feeling good about myself. But I won't pay the price of holiness. Man, living for Jesus seven days a week? Man, I'll take an hour on Sunday morning. That's, I can afford that. I'll pad my pocket with that kind of thing. And so our attitude towards our own sin is significant. And here, let me just be really clear. Because I don't want to hear something on Facebook about something crazy. We take the Bible literally. We believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. It says what God wants it to say. But one of the key hallmarks of taking the Bible literally is understanding the literal forms that Jesus uses. Jesus uses a lot of sarcasm. Here he uses hyperbole. It's exaggerated language. There is no denomination of one-eyed Christians anywhere in the world that I know of. Okay? So we, we are... I don't want to see any lopped off hands in the offering plate. No eyes on a on a pen, you know, you keep that offering for yourself. The Bible says throw it away, so throw it away. Don't give it to somebody else. Um, the point here is he is using this, he's using hyperbole as over-exaggeration as a teaching point to say, don't coddle it. Don't, don't cherish it. Don't cut it off and put it in your memento box, in your nightstand. Throw it away. Get it as far away from you as possible. Because when it comes to your sin, and we see this, because Jesus offers this cure somewhere else. Matthew 5, 27 through 30, when he talks about lust, says, don't look lustfully. If, if one of your members of your body causes you sin, cut it off, throw it away. Same, almost exact wording. His point is, when it comes to your sin, it is kill or be killed. Kill or be killed. You want to know where someone's, where someone's at on the continuum of Christian maturity? Look at how serious they are about their sin. And the very best thing we can say about a Christian who doesn't care about their sin is that they're, they're an infant, completely immature maybe not a believer. 
Because Christians take their sin seriously. We will either kill our sin or our sin will kill us. And Jesus says, get it away. Because it is better to limp into heaven than it is to leap into hell. So I told you something. That when you start to hear Jesus talk about the community he came to purchase with his own blood, he says there is a humility that pervades this community. That as Jesus gave the example on the taxes, Jesus was willing to do what he didn't have to do to not give offense to non-believers. That's amazing. And he sets the example for what our community is supposed to look like. He says, listen, if I'm humble towards non-believers, what should characterize our gathering together? We should have a humility that does not use our freedom as an opportunity to make someone else stumble. We should gladly and joyfully limit our freedom so that we take holiness seriously. We should celebrate. We had, we had a, a gentleman in the first service join the church. Been visiting for two weeks. Is it's the place where I'm supposed to? We're supposed to celebrate that. You know, a guy who said, man, I went to church when I was a kid. I haven't been to church for 30, 40 years. I thought I was a Christian. I thought I believed the gospel. But I just did what I did because that's what my mom and my grandparents told me to. He goes, I'm coming back now. Uh, lost my wife to cancer. Uh, life is real. I get it now. I need to be baptized because I believe the gospel. Now, that is Woo-hoo! That's awesome. And the Bible says we have a humility that's not embarrassed to celebrate. Some of you, like, you know, like if we clap in church, you do it like below the pew, you know, because you're worried about status. The Bible says you've got the, you, you, when you have humility, you can worship. You can celebrate. You can befriend. You don't have to worry about being friends with him because your best friend's going to be mad at you now that you're going out to lunch, taking the new guy out to lunch. There's a, there's a humility that pervades everything. And I just ask the question, don't you want to be a part of a community like that? That is so concerned about other people that we are glad to limit what we have the right to do so that we can do what is best for other people. We're going to continue through Matthew 18 over the next three weeks. And I pray, I pray that God gives us the resolution of heart to desire to build the kind of community that he came to die for. A community that's concerned about people and is concerned about holiness. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we pray that you open our eyes. We, we are so concerned about our stuff, our priorities, that it's easy for us to just not even be cognizant of what your priorities are. God, you want us to live for your glory. And you tell us if we're going to do that, there's humility that is involved. Help us not despise that. Help us to treasure it. Help us to cherish it. Help us to desire it. And uh, humble people, glad to deny their rights. Pleased to follow Christ. Willing to pay the price for a holiness that's not just good for their own individual and independent interest, but for the good of the community. God, we pray that you would give us a heart for these things. In Jesus' name.